Hello and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Historical Humans Podcast. My name is Justin Woods, and I'm joined today by my fellow co-hosts, Colin Coleman and Aaron Gilpin. And today we are heading to the southernmost point in Africa, a point that has irre- irrevocably been changed due to uh, British counterparts. I know we like to riff on the British, but this one I think is justified, because we're going to be talking about the Boer War. It's it's almost always justified, but uh, we will be <laughs> so much fun. Uh, we will be going into the colonial history of what is now the nation of South Africa, uh, mainly how it became the nation of South Africa. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a series of wars known as the Boer Wars. Uh, the Boers uh, were what is also known as the Afrikaners. They were the Dutch colonists that lived in South Africa. And there's nothing like conquering a people and then naming a war after them as if to blame them for the for your own invasion. Uh, yeah. Naturally. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> some some uh, tw- uh what is it? 19th century uh logic. Logic or at least um skills or 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 well it, it, Concepts were used in the 21st century, unfortunately. I believe it's called late Victorian imperialism. Yeah. Hey, I know that imperialism word. That's one of the causes of World War One mania. <laughs> it's the eye. Yep. Well, that's a callback. So, <laughs> so the Boer Wars are, in fact, two wars. Um. The first is known as the Transvaal War of Independence, which was fought between 1880 and 1881. And the second is known as the South African War, which was fought between 1899 and 1902. Uh, both wars were fought over who would control uh, South, uh, South Africa, the British or the Dutch. Uh, it is an inherently uneven fight. <laughs> Seems like, yeah, that's a lot of. They said like what, five hundred thousand, right? Uh, I think that yeah. was the second war. No, yeah. oh, second. Either that, yeah, way, the, yeah, yeah. The, the the British deploy uh, over half a million troops to win the to win some of these wars. <laughs> it's um, it's pretty vicious. But prior to the onset of these wars, what we know today as South Africa was in fact four separate colonies. Uh the first two were known as Cape Colony and Natal. These are British colonies. Cape Colony is the largest, it is the most prosperous, and it is the one that sort of sees itself as the rightful uh, ruler of all the South African colonies. So is this Cape Town? Yeah, this would be, I believe this would be based out of Cape Town. <laughs> It makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> it's Cape Colony. Yeah. Like, Cape Colony alone controls about half of the territory that is South Africa. So, you know, the other, you know, the other three, you know, have to combine to make that up. Well, and I also think uh, Joburg, Johannesburg, is uh, Dutch-controlled at this point. Um, yes, I believe it is. There were some maps that... Uh, I was looking at when I uh, was writing up some of this stuff. Uh, I don't remember them now, but yeah, Johannesburg would be a Dutch city. Yeah. Um, uh, the Dutch colonies, uh, we should mention, the other two, are known as the Orange Free State and Transvaal. Um, the British did not like the fact that the Orange Free State and Transvaal were not British colonies. Um... I do think it's an important point to highlight real quick. Sorry to jump in here, but yeah, no, no, keep going. The the British East Indies companies and the Dutch East Indies companies had literally been two companies at war in southeastern Asia to the point where those sentiments ran very deep both in England and in the Netherlands to the point where this manifested a lot of times externally and this is why imperialism becomes such a problematic thing especially for all these countries that had vast colonial holdings is because a lot of times those sentiments may not have been a direct war 
but involved a lot of proxy wars over colonies. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's what we see happening here, and that's what we see happening with most of the history of the Dutch and British East India companies. Uh, they are... Uh, these two nations are not friends. And so... Cape Tent, you know, Cape Colony starts looking for ways it can sort of gobble up uh, the other colonies, or at least put them under British, uh, under the British flag. Uh, and the way to do this, it decides, is Transvaal, because uh, if Cape Colony eats Transvaal, it will completely encapsulate the Orange Free State, forcing it to be effectively blockaded by Cape Colony. With no, with no way to get inland or to the ocean. So they're essentially just going to try to starve it out trade-wise. Yeah, that, that is the general plan uh, that kicks off the first Boer War in 1880. Uh, Cape Colony and Natal both gang up on Transvaal to do this. Um, however, Transvaal uh, does not... Even though Transvaal fights alone, they receive heavy... Uh, support from the Orange Free State uh, in terms of safe havens, supplies, the things you would need to fight a war. The Orange Free State doesn't actually get involved in the war, but they kind of do the whole, you know, Lend-Lease Act kind of deal of, you know, I will give you weapons at cost because if you go down, I'm screwed. <laughs> so there's a lot of that going on. Um... The pretext for this war is that England uh, declares an annexation of Transvaal, which the Dutch and Transvaal do not really recognize. And so in order to enforce English rule in the area, naturally they have to put down this silly little government. <laughs> oh, silly little government. You know, if yeah. there's one thing that the British have a lot of experience at this point, this is kind of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the war here is personally orchestrated by a man who I will be referring to only as, or only by his official title, the Fourth Earl of Carnival. The Fourth now, Earl of Carnival? Yeah, Carnarvon. Now, Carnarvon here, a uh, slimy fellow that he is, was the Secretary of State for British South Africa from 1868 until the outbreak of the war in 1880. And his dream, uh, yes, he has a dream. I also uh, have a dream. Uh, that, all, uh, <laughs> that all the Dutch and African peoples within the territories of South Africa will bow to British rule. They will live in a world where the British flag flies over all of them unquestioned. That sounds like a very British dream, especially in the yeah. fact that he never asked the people who live there how they yeah. would feel about yeah. that dream. Yeah. Why do yeah. I hear rule, Batan rule Britannia in the background, oh, guys? No. <laughs> in, in 1876... He begins to start fortifying his position, importing troops, and building up a massive military to wipe out the Dutch uh, colonies. Naturally. In 1877, he announces the annexation of Transvaal, which is something that only he recognizes. No one else acknowledges this as a legitimate document. You know... I think a lot of recent sociopolitical uh, events have taught us that, you know, annexations and usually the creations of new breakaway states tend to not hold much validity until other nations and other polities start recognizing you. If nobody recognizes you, then it's not annexation more so than just conquest. Well, here, here's the thing. Everyone recognized Transvaal. The... Br the British guy here, Carnarvon, declares that Transvaal no longer exists. Carnarvon is the only person to believe that this document is in any way legitimate. Well, knowing the British del delusional uh, mentality, yeah. Yeah. The, the British nation yeah. believed that the empire was expanding once more. 
Yeah. Now, and it's not too hard to get the British uh, on on his side here. Uh, Transvaal uh, in 1877 is currently suffering from uh, two major failures. The first is bankruptcy. The government has declared has had to declare bankruptcy. It's broke. It has gone broke fighting a war against an African tribe known as the Petty. Um, it does not really lose this war, but it costs them everything to uh, to fight it. What did it cost? So, everything. Yeah. So yeah, Carnivon thinks he's looking at a you know economically starved, war weary state with an unpopular government ripe for the taking. Thing is, as much as the Dutch hate what happened with the Petty War, they hate the British more. Understandable. Uh, uh, completely understandable. I also would feel that way about the British. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So much so that Transvaal openly protests the annexation, but the British uh, officials in London refuse to hear their petitions. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. We did nothing wrong. We can't yeah. hear anything wrong. Guys, yeah. if we don't acknowledge it, it never happened. Just like the Irish Farrah. <laughs> they you hear British Parliament say. Yeah, yeah. The soldier's song just starts playing. <laughs> Why do Irish I hear black and tans in the background, guys? You know, for whatever reason, I hear a group of Canadians entering a trench in World War Two. I, I... Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Um and World War One. For the most part, the British are able to get de facto control of Transvaal. However, this is where things go wrong for them. Because they place in charge of Transvaal a man by what has to be the most Hellenophile English name I have ever heard. Sir Theophilus Shepstone. Oh no. This man should not have been put in charge of Transvaal. Because within two years of the annexation, he starts the Anglo-Zulu War in 1879. This is the war that features the famous Battle of Roke's Drift, wherein a few hundred British have to hold off 10,000 angry Zulu tribesmen uh, inside a single building. Oh, no. Jesus. Uh, this war kicks off with a massacre of 5,000 British soldiers. <laughs> so, and is a humiliating defeat for the British forces. This war humiliates England. It makes the English look weak. They lost to a bunch of angry tribesmen with spears. Now to those fair, tribesmen fair, have guns were very and are invading. Yeah. Right. It also should be highlighted that around this point in time was a huge turning point in the British Empire compared to its previous uh, centuries worth of holdings. It all, it genuinely, as Americans, I know we focus a lot on it, but it started with the fall of the American colonies in 1776, and then progressively, over the subsequent 100 years leading up to the Boer Wars, England lost control, uh, Canada got its independence, Australia and New Zealand began their own independent um, situation. Britain lost a lot of its holdings under Queen Victoria. Yeah, and and this war just underscores the fact that the British idea that they can push wherever they want or that they can, in fact, hold and protect everything they have is a lie. And that's largely due to British tactics being horribly outdated in 1879. Um, well, they hadn't adjusted in over a century. They still fought yeah. the same war. They, The way they started this war was the exact same way they started the American Revolution. The same way they fought Napoleon. Yeah. Yeah. It, it It's going to get worse. It's like Cause... it's like you think, you know, maybe we're, we did something wrong. <laughs> no! <laughs> Do you think we are the baddies? You're always the baddies, Britain. You know this. <laughs> yeah. All right. uh, are we the baddies? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so uh, sensing their chance, the Boers declare that Transvaal has been restored in December 13th, 1880. They basically announce that their government is back. The annexation is invalid. It's over. It's done. We, we exist again. And 
the British really don't learn from the Anglo-Zulu crisis they just dealt with. Uh, and instead decide to underestimate the Boers. Uh, yeah, naturally. Yeah. Who, who, to their credit, refuse to invade Cape Colony. <laughs> and instead besiege all of the British garrisons in Transvaal so that none of them can get out of their base and reinforce each other and form a massive uh, army that could crush the Boer Rebellion. Wow, so you mean, like, (laughs) army tactics circa 5000 BCE taking place here of encirclement. Yeah, yeah. And basically what they do (laughs) is this war has 11 key points of engagement, seven sieges and four battles. And what's important to know is we're not going to go into all of them uh, in particular because they're all fought more or less the same way. But how it works is the Boers refuse to wear military uniforms, besiege a key position, wait for news of a relief army coming to save that key position, hide in the hills, and then massacre them once they enter any valley. It works. It just works. It goes (laughs) so badly for the British that they are driven to full retreat during the first two battles of this war. Now, the British Empire... It prides itself on having a on having the bugle that will never sound retreat. They might withdraw, but they never run. They run. Well, I also think to an extent that the the military tactics and this attack also just kind of took them by surprise. I, I mean, the British maintained a lot of garrisons across the across their holdings, pretty much anywhere they were. But their garrisons were maybe a couple thousand people at best, if not a couple hundred. Yeah, yeah. And the, the key thing with the Boer tactics is that they need that in order to establish order here, the British had to build a ton of garrisons because they're living in hostile country with, you know, an entire population that doesn't want them there. Well, so it, there's un, there's hundreds of small garrisons, all of which can't get out and form that massive British army that would effectively just steamroll the, the Boers no matter what they do. There's a, a really funny sketch comedy group uh, from the mid-2000s called The Whitest Kids You Know, and they have a sketch about the British military that I think truly encapsulates this in a nutshell, where it is the British versus the Americans, and the British are like, all right, chaps, it is our turn for the first volley. And as they get ready to shoot, the Americans just fire, and they go, no, 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 you're entirely out of your own turn. (laughs) It is our turn. And since you (laughs) took your turn, we get two turns. And they get ready to fire, and the Americans just fire again. And it's just... Like, rip! The Americans are not playing fair. Yeah. I imagine the same <laughs> is done here. <laughs> war, war, warfare is a turn-based RPG for the British. <laughs> Seriously, and they just use their massive numbers and their tactics yeah. to mm-hmm. outmaneuver people, when in reality, it's for the British, it's just a war of attrition. Yeah. Especially and when the, the colonists are the ones in the army, you know, yeah. killing the bodies. Yeah. And the, the thing is, like, the, the Boers know this, so they just resolve that they're going to force uh, the British to fight in smaller numbers. Because the British strength is the fact that like they can amass a single army of half a million people at which point you will not be able to stop them. So if they can prevent that army from forming they can win. And here's the thing. British morale goes so poorly during this like single year war that most of the forts and garrisons start surrendering to the Boers. They give up their guns and ammunition and just surrender. Because <laughs> their, their their main armies are being annihilated trying to save them. There's no point to there's no point in holding out. You're you're literally on, your only purpose sitting in this fort is to lure your fellow soldiers to their death. So they uh they start giving up. And the British respond by pulling back and trying to make uh, as hard of a line as they can. They pull back to uh, uh, Pretoria, which is um, 
which would, would have been the capital of Transvaal, would have been the capital district. Uh, in response, the Boers simply, like they do with, with Cape Colony, they refuse to enter it and instead proceed to just systematically annihilate any British regiment caught in the territory they can control. <laughs> they just they just don't take the bait. They're like, yeah, no, we can't beat you if you have a fully entrenched position with a fully uh, uh, prepared army. So we're going to go around and hit everything that's not that. <laughs> it's effective, and it's something that a lot of military tacticians are train themselves on now, but truly had a lot of issues, is this idea of guerrilla warfare. Non-traditional yeah. warfare, taking these massive trained militaries and throwing them on their heads because, you know, you learn to fight proper military tactics against other trained armies, especially when you're going up against Napoleon, of all people. Yeah, yeah. and the simple thing that the British don't realize in this war, or even in the next one, is that just because you are there does not mean your enemy has an obligation to fight you there. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, why? Because they'd all die if they fought you here. They know that. They're come not stupid. There's like, come down here and fight us cowards. Why don't you come up here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think I will. Sorry. Sorry, chap. Yeah. And, uh, by August 8th of 1881, the war ends. The Boer government is restored in Pretoria. Transvaal has achieved its independence from its uh, three-year-long pseudo-annexation. Uh, that ends the First Boer War. It is a resounding success for the Boers. It humiliates Britain, especially since it was effectively one uh, Dutch colony beating the heck out of two British colonies. Well, we know the British take defeat in stride and don't yeah. come back with a vengeance and don't try to exact revenge in horrific ways. Yeah. Yeah. The best part is I think Transvaal is I think Transvaal is the smallest of the colonies in uh in South Africa, so it's 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 literally getting beaten up by a second grader. But I we talk about how small the colonies are. But they are Dutch colonies too. Yeah. Yeah. No. But like, but like, Britain had access to more land, more people, more troops, more financial support, a better, uh, a better network to stabilize itself in the event something went wrong, and they still lost this war. It's a good old story of David versus Goliath. Yeah. Except if Goliath was the British. Yeah. Military complex. <laughs> and so the Boers get peace for 18 years. Uh, because in 1899, the second Boer breaks out. This one lasts a little longer. Uh, goes away in 1902. And this time, it's not a war between colonies. It is the British Empire versus the Orange Free State and Transvaal. This time, England says enough is enough. Uh, you will face all of us since you're so good at beating up one of us. Oh no! The entirety of the British army. <laughs> yeah, the British. The British had one member get beaten up like a young cousin who went back home and was like, "Mummy, puppy, I got beaten up in the in the African colony." And they go, "Oh no, no!" They go, "Yeah, they they killed thousands of men." And the family's like, "All right, let's call yep. in all the cousins." <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. And this war, the Second Boer War, is the most costly British war of the 19th century. It costs the British spend 200 million pounds and deploy 500,000 soldiers for the sole purpose of conquering these two Dutch colonies. And that's 20 million pounds unadjusted, by the way. Which I'm that's trying to figure that out yeah. now. Yeah. Good luck, good luck with that. Uh, they did all of this to defeat a Boer force of less than one-fifth their size, as the Boers had a maximum troop count of 88,000. So, for reference, 200 million pounds in 1899 adjusted for inflation is roughly equivalent to 32 billion pounds. Yeah. 
the British army emptied their coffers for this war. Yeah. Just like they did the American war. They literally just opened a fire on the ship and just <laughs> shoveled the pounds into it. Uh, g- given how the war goes uh, in 1901, they may as well have been doing that. Oh, no. <laughs> given some of their tactics. The, so they invest heavily in defensive fortifications that do not work. And it is hilarious. But this war starts off uh, because of Britain's greed and lust for power. See, during the 18 years of peace, Transvaal had become home to the biggest gold mine in the world. Oh. Effectively allowing it to replace Cape Colony as the dominant power of the South African colonies. So gold, diamonds... Emeralds. It's almost as if there's an economic interest based on the locations that they are fighting over. Ah, what would they need gold for, you know? You see, here's the fun thing. The British Empire, with its trades, is hugely dependent on gold in order to pay for things and to keep up standards and balances of trade. The British are in a trade deficit to China over opium. Oh, right. They can't get enough porcelain and tea, and they can't sell opium fast enough to make up for their losses. I forgot this is also going on at the same time. <laughs> as. Jesus! Like, they have con- yeah, the British have converted half of India into an opium farm, and they're still going bankrupt. God, do you know how hard it is to go bankrupt as like the world's premier drug dealer? <laughs> you have to be trying. That's like if Escobar just went broke or like went into massive debt. <laughs> that's that's how bad the British are at managing their money right now. So they need fresh influx of gold, which at this time is literally solid money. Um, the other key issues with this uh, gold dependency is that Transvaal had a policy that said Uitlanders, which was the Transvaal uh, uh, term for foreigners living in Transvaal, to own the gold mines. You could work in them, but you could not own them. And because of all this gold and wealth, Transvaal is modernizing, they're replacing Cape Colony, uh, and Britain really doesn't like this. They still think they're entitled to Transvaal because of the annexation of uh, 1877. Um, So they claim that even if they don't have direct annexed rule, they have the right to suzerainty of Transvaal, meaning that they have the right to dictate Transvaal's internal and external policies, uh, sort of like a puppet state, that Transvaal should only exist to serve the whims of the British government. Um, well, Transvaal takes issue with this. No, no, no. The British have a point. They have a vested economic interest in Cape Colony. They cannot let another sister colony to that outperform. Yeah, yeah. So, in 1897, the British do the only rational thing. They demand that uh, all British people living in Transvaal, all British Uitlanders, be given full rights, and, you know, that the gold mines be turned over to England. Ah, naturally, naturally. Yeah. You know that thing that's making you hyper-prosperous yeah. and wealthy. And they don't outright state that second point. However, the purpose of giving the British Uitlanders full rights would be so that the British government could use them to buy out the gold mines. That's Britain's plan, is to effectively bribe or muscle their, once the British citizens can legally do so, to you know muscle out anyone who isn't British and runs a gold mine. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Though. Now, what's interesting with Transvaal is most gold mines at this time can be run as single-person uh, operations. The gold in Transvaal is deep underground. It requires complex industrial machinery to work. It is only it is only because of like national level funding that any gold is able to be extracted. So Transvaal is naturally very protective of its gold. And the British can't just come in there, mine a few rocks, and run across the border. 
which really screws with Britain for the longest time. Um, but yeah. And so in 1899, what's known as the Bloemfontein Conference is held. This is where the Orange Free State tries to negotiate a, like, peaceable settlement between Britain and Transvaal. Um, and Transvaal agrees to make some concessions. They agree to lighten restrictions on the British Outlanders. Uh, but they won't outright just give up the, you know, give up the goat. They won't just outright do it. So Britain uh, uh, deems that these concessions are not enough and then proceeds to deploy uh, a massive army to South Africa and have it sit on the border of Transvaal. With, you know, the natural implied threat that all gunboat diplomacy brings. Do as I say or I murder everyone you love. From the safety of my gunboat in the harbor. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they, uh, um, Transvaal then offers Britain even more concessions. But Britain has already committed to violence at this point, so they refuse. That's that's <laughs> Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. At which point, Transvaal sees the writing on the wall and issues an ultimatum to England. Withdraw or perish. And they order that Britain remove all the troops from the Transvaal Cape Colony border, or they will invade Cape Colony. Britain laughs, and they decide to call Transvaal's bluff. And to the surprise of no one who isn't English, on October 11th, 1899, the army of Transvaal sweeps over the British line into Cape Colony. Jeez. <laughs> the British are caught completely by surprise. They literally told the British what day they were invading, and the British still weren't prepared for it. Oh, yeah, it's bad. It's bad. Now, the British policy was that Transvaal is a small nation. It's a small colony. Even if it is rich, it won't risk losing everything overnight by invading. And if they do, they're Dutch. We can beat them easily. They're just the Dutch. They're just the Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't they also end up, like, kicking their ass at, like, like, uh in the English channel at one point. This is the this is this is the English army. It learns nothing. <laughs> no, they don't cuz ego, money and just influence. It's the British's it's, like own concoction. Yeah, this is this is pre this is like pre-industrialized warfare for them. The promotion system is based off is, is hereditary. Oh yeah, that's right. Your father your father's a baron? You're a colonel. You're 19 years old, but you're a colonel. <laughs> Not to mention your father is the third baron of Elderberry and went to the Royal Army Academy, where you have also graduated. So congratulations. You are now a lieutenant at 17. <laughs> yep. Yep. To be fair, um, though, they also had more military training than most of the army, but... <laughs> yep. But still. Uh... What's fun uh, about this is that the Bo the Boers invade the British colony of Natal from Transvaal, and they invade Cape Colony by marching through the Orange Free State. <laughs> the epitome the of not my... Because <laughs> the Orange Free State is on their side. They know what happens if Transvaal loses. So they just throw their lot in with them. God, that is the epitome of like not my not my <laughs> battle, not my fight. You know, you you watch uh, the fights that go viral on the internet of people just looking away or continuing about their business. That's the Orange Free State. <laughs> it, <laughs> God, it, it, get, it gets even better. Oh, British no. rule, being British, is so unpopular that the Northern Territories of Cape Colony rebel against England and join the, and join the invading Boers 
to march on to, to march on Cape Town. Damn, you know you really fucked up when you when your own colonies say, uh, yeah, no. Again, don't say that about the British because almost all of their colonies rebel at some point. Yeah. Now, the key to this is this is Northern Cape Colony, which means it's the inland part. So the primary uh, demographic here is not British. It is African and it is Boer and British. You know, but the British make a small minority out of that, which means that the other two demographics both hate England. So it's still like modern day Cape Town where the the white South Africans, the, the British derived or the Afrikaans derived, live in the beautiful part of town, the safe parts, the ones where... Yeah. yeah. Basically, this is where all the non-English people living in the English colony are living. So they all just rebel. Most places would call that the natives. Well, it's also it's also the Dutch. It's the Dutch and the Africans that are living in uh, in Cape Colony live in this region. Jeez, yeah, yeah. They're they're surprisingly enough, Transvaal and like Cape Colony have like open borders for like the entirety of their history, despite hating each other. Well, yeah, because it's it's the people up top that hate each other, whereas reality, the people on the ground are like, eh, that's my cousin. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. So it's like, so it's like, they, they, you know, there's people on both sides of the line here. It's just everyone rebels. And uh, initially, the Boers are just winning. They win field victories. They besiege key British positions. It's effectively a repeat of the first Boer War. Um, during the Black Week, uh, December 10th to 15th of 1899, the Boers win three major engagements in five days. They conquer the British at uh, Magersfontein, Colesburg, and Stormberg. They just they just ambush and annihilate any British force that comes out to face them and uh, besiege any force that doesn't. Because once again, the Britain ha- the British have divided their forces to form a picket line. Well, and the thing I get a kick out of with this is. You know, not much really changed from the first Boer War to the second in terms of tactics and the way they approach it. And yeah. part of that is the British not learning and the Boers realizing just how effective it is against the British. Yeah. Yeah. So in response, the British perform what I like to call a reverse sea turtle hatching, where they just start sending overwhelming forces out of the ocean into Cape Colony. <laughs> Crazy just, how much we see them do that. Yeah. They just start importing soldiers. Um, in 1900, uh, at the start of the year, they land a, uh, they land most of their army. Most of the 500,000 shows up. Wow. Under, really? Yep. Under the command of two men, Kitchener and Roberts. Lord Roberts, Kitchener? Roberts is not important. Lord Kitchener, however, is, for what we're going to talk about. This is because Kitchener is one of those few people in history where you can say, did he do anything that wasn't a war crime? Oh, boy. Hmm. Is it a war crime? Is it not a war crime? The Geneva Conventions didn't exist at this time. Yeah. Yeah. But, Your Honor, how could it be a war crime if we won? (laughs) Yeah. Uh. Kitchener's tactics are so brutal that it sparks anti-war protests in London. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, wow. He's that that terrible of a human being. He's that terrible. And we get to talk about him for like the next half of this this podcast because most of what happens is his fault. (laughs) clearly (laughs) (laughs) so step one for kitchener is uh logistics he takes control of the railways and he uses them to effectively do um steampunk blitzkrieg where he just ships massive amount of soldiers around the country as fast as the trains can carry them to just drop overwhelming force on the doorstep of the Boers. 
And because of this, he's able to break some sieges. He's able to secure most of the urban areas for England. There's just one problem. Like 80% of the country is rural or wilderness. <laughs> and the Boers still control all of that. Hmm. So despite the fact that he has these successes, he's able to relieve the British positions like uh, they weren't able to do in the First Boer War. He's able to start turning the tide, stop, you know, he stops the bleeding. The Boers just keep attacking because he can't pin down the main Boer force. They look like civilians. They hide in the bush and they attack whenever we're not looking. Um... It, it's it, again. I know I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but it is amazing how effective warfare like this is. And the funny thing to me is, I know we haven't quite classified this as guerrilla warfare yet, and I know that's upcoming. But this is still very. This is guerrilla warfare one on one. This is like pre. Yeah. The the, the key distinction here is the Boers are still like openly meeting the british in battle like they will step out of the trees form a line and just shoot down into them and then run away <laughs> like they're still doing that the guerrilla warfare is when things escalate oh no oh no no they no escalate yeah. how yeah. well over the course of six months starting in february uh um uh what's his name here kitchener captures uh three key positions in February, he takes Bloemfontein, which is the capital of the Orange Free State. He takes Johannesburg, the most uh, important non-capital city, in May. He takes uh, Pretoria, the capital of Transvaal, in June. And in so doing, he forces Paul Kruger, the president of Transvaal, to flee to Europe. Which, by the way, fun fact, uh, the Dutch colonies were democracies. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> well, yeah. The... Which the British despise. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. The the British to democracy is penicillin to most <laughs> modern medicine. Yeah. Uh, they just destroyed the disease. Yeah. The disease of democracy. Yeah. Uh, Paul Kruger does a lot of things to really... Uh, uh, try and garner support for the uh, the Boer cause in Europe. And even though he is unable to secure any meaningful assistance, no supplies, no weapons, no soldiers, he does successfully turn most of Europe against England. I which is not that hard. I was going to say, it's not that hard, especially around this time where a lot of European unity is happening. This is the first true sense yeah. of European identity because everyone after Napoleon and his ancestors died yeah. out were like, hey, we're all yeah. cousins and friends. Yeah. And we're all they, cousins Kruger, here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kruger plays up that concept of this isn't, um, you know, some foreign invasion or some distant war. This is the British uh, becoming the next Napoleon. This is the British asserting their right to rule over other european nations but then nobody and wanted that to... is that is a line that the european nations feel that no one should cross because the last time someone crossed it was napoleon but then they still refuse to do anything about it they still yeah. go hey we don't agree with this but you kind of scary and i i don't disagree with that because the british were fighting a war on literally the other side of the planet yeah and Fighting one in your backyard is a little different when London is only a short boat trip away. Yeah, and the, the real issue, too, is that Transvaal and the Dutch don't have anything to really offer the other European powers for assistance. Yes, it has that prosperous gold mine, but Transvaal's fighting a defensive war. It's going to be rebuilding. Tra uh, Transvaal doesn't have the massive economic connections Transvaal can't protect your vessels uh, when they go out to sea. Transvaal can't help you when you need help. You know, you would be propping them up for the sake of spiting the British and get nothing else out of it. 
So they don't have an incentive beyond morality to do anything. So like any nation, they don't do anything. Oh, oh poor bastards. Yeah. It's just, it, we, we make jokes and we make light of this, but in reality, this is truly one of the darkest periods, I think, in British history. Beyond, and I know that All says the a other lot. periods of British history. Yeah, I, I know. There's a lot. And rightfully so, they deserve the, the shit talking. Yeah. I, I promise, like, despite the strong anti-British sentiments on this podcast and on our videos we do actually really like england and britain and the united kingdom as a whole it's just this is really fucking dark yeah uh we are primarily like anti-imperialist anti-authoritarian anti-colonial for the most part so like so like britain and spain and sometimes the good old us of a really start getting flack because they tended to do this more than anyone else Yeah. And they're not the only guilty parties. They're just the most visible. God, and the Americans, they did it longer than anyone else because they're like, well, of course we'll stop. <laughs> they're yep. marching along. Yeah. Now, now, the uh, Boers shift into full guerrilla warfare here under two men who have some of the funnest names I think I've had to say on this show. Uh, we have Christian Rudolph DeWet. And Jacobus Hercules de la Rey. Beautiful names. Truly men of, of stature. These two men hold off the British for 15 months. Wow. Without any government to support them. Because Paul Kruger is in Europe. He has had to flee. The government of, of Transvaal is a government in exile. Oh. Yeah. So, Naturally, what he does to make this true guerrilla warfare is he stops target. Is these two men stop targeting the British armies? They've broken sieges. They're able to form a large single army. Instead, he starts attacking their communications, their supplies, their rail lines. He just starts sabotaging anything he can get his hands on. I mean, when you're looking at this war and the logistics side of things, because. I, I'm going to speak to a lot of grunts' hearts here, and logistics win war. Let's yeah. call it what yeah. it is. Logistics wins wars. And what the Boers were doing is they were strategic on their attacks. They were going after supply lines. They were going after communication networks. Like They were toppling the house as the foundations were being laid. It, it, it It's kind of a great strategy because if you – allow them to get that kind of foothold, that kind of stranglehold over those networks, it's game over right from the get-go. But if you can keep them second-guessing, if you can keep them on their toes, if you can keep these small incursions, you're going to cause a lot more stress. And the British supply lines were massive. In order to get uh, to Transvaal, you had to get on a ship from somewhere else in the British Empire, sail to Cape Colony, from there, you had to go hundreds of miles inland to the border of Transvaal, and then probably another good hundred miles more to cross it. So there is a massive open network just within Cape Colony to just for the sake of attacking. And he, th- these two men, they target it, and they are brutally effective. Uh, Kitchener. Um, Response to uh, uh, to this by deploying barbed wire and blockhouses along the railways. Now, what a blockhouse is, is if you were to make a little square building and put a bunch of gun turrets on it, that is a blockhouse. It's about two stories tall. It looks like a little tower fort. It's a, it's a, it's a cube standing on a pole. Um, the Boers do what they did in the first Boer War. They ignore fortified British positions. They ignore uh, hard lines of defense. They control the entire countryside. You might be able to put one of these blockhouses every 10, 20 miles. So they'll get right between two of them, wait for the train to come by, and topple it. <laughs> and you can't stop them. Because the uh, the alternate there, and this is where the British really hit their, their rope's end, so to speak, is... Yeah. 
at what interval do you stop trying to build some? Because you have them a couple miles apart, you plop one right down in the middle. They just keep bisecting that. They just keep going in between yeah. them. At a certain point, you're just building a massive manned wall along the entire railway, uh, which Kitchener realizes he can't do. He realizes he's burning money. I mean, he's got 32 billion uh, pounds worth of modern British currency to wage this war, and he is burning through it. So he instead decides that if reasonable measures can't win this war, unreasonable means must be taken. And he goes to scorched earth. Anything not owned by a British person is destroyed. <laughs> he burns every farm that belongs to either a Boer or an African. He gathers up the entire population of Transvaal and puts them into concentration camps, yeah, which he then is. proceeds to neglect. This is definitely where it takes a darker turn, and we knew this was coming. That's why I tried to keep it light, but yeah. they created a really, really effective slaughterhouse. And even though it was a concentration camp, so to speak, where they were just housed, it killed a thousands because it was just inhumane conditions not proper sanitation they were hardly given any sort of food or medical attention that was needed yeah. not to mention when you put so many people in such a small area that this was truly one of the cruelest acts done in this time period now the primary uh demographic for for the death toll in these camps is children it is women and children um, he effectively decides that if he can't win the war today, he will eliminate the next generation of Boers so that there can be none who come after. Yeah, that's just genocide. That's just straight up genocide. Yeah. Except he gets a, he sidesteps this by saying, I'm not killing them. I'm just leaving them to die. Uh, things get so bad that there is international outcry at the conditions uh, these conditions are exposed by a woman named Emily Hobhouse. Now, Hobhouse here was an English social worker. She was working in the United States of America when, uh, I believe, a friend uh, told her the rumors of this of these horrors that were going on during this war in South Africa. And she decided that she was going to investigate. Um, the Boers nickname her the Angel of Love for what she does when she finds out what happens. <laughs> Which is basically make every paper that she can find in England, America, Europe, start printing stories of the atrocities that she witnesses verbatim. God. She engages a massive information warfare. And in response... She is forcibly deported from South Africa in 1901. Again, I, I want to highlight the fact that this is the 19th century at this point. This is the tail end of the Gilded Age. Like, the Enlightenment has gone through. Enlightenment has happened. People are starting to become more cognizant about conditions of others. People are starting to be more empathetic. The fact that the British are continuing this in 1901. Yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. it doesn't sound very enlightened to me. Yeah, she is she is forcibly deported. However, conditions are improved as a result of her efforts. And I say improved because the only source I could find on what improvements were done was Kitchener saying, I promise, pretty promise, please, that I have done something about this. Believe me. For fuck's sakes. I could not find I, I could not find anything detailing what changed between Hobhouse's arrival and Hobhouse's exile, other than the world finding out that Kitchener, that Kitchener here was trying to kill everyone. I guarantee you, if that, if I guarantee you, I can just imagine if the internet was around then, Kitchener would be somebody who'd be like, "I guess it's too woke to just kill people now." Yeah, yeah literally, like cancel culture will no longer let us do this. Yeah. God damn, cancel culture won't last commit a genocide. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, awful. The, the Boers, for their part, uh, managed to strike at Cape Colony. Uh, they get about 
50 miles, 80 kilometers from uh, Cape Town, the British capital of South Africa. And they just disrupt everything. They hit everything in a what is unfortunately an act of desperation. Uh, they have been worn down by the atrocities. They are witnessing constant atrocities. These are their families. Their families are dying. And everywhere there is a promise of if you just stop, if you just stop fighting the British, we won't kill everyone you love. Oh, that's and it. Every day, and every day the Boers keep fighting, there's a chance that everyone they love will be brutally murdered. That that just sounds like stop resisting arrest. Stop resisting yeah. colonization. Yeah. And really Kitchener's, Kitchener's brutality does wear down the Boers. The Boer camp splits between uh, uh, bitter enders and hop stoppers, which are the people who want to fight to the bitter end and the people who are willing to put their hands up and surrender. Um, eventually the uh hand the the hop stoppers win went out um there is a peace offer put forward in march of 1901 uh the british peace officer offer uh basically states that transvaal will recognize british authority transvaal will cease to exist transvaal will be annexed under the british crown and in return at the local level, you will be allowed to govern yourselves. This offer is rejected. However, another year of warfare um, brings about the peace of Vereningig in May of 1902, in which point the Boers decide that it is better to live on your knees than be exterminated. Uh, the Boers accept British annexation. They accept the suzerainty of uh, Britain and Cape Colony and all of that good stuff that the British wanted. Uh, in return, they were granted local self-government, and they are allowed to once again work and run the gold mines under the new British rules. This peace also forged an alliance against the Africans as both the Bo as the Boers had come to realize, as had the British, that if this war goes on much longer, the white minority in South Africa will no longer be of sufficient strength to suppress all the African tribes that are currently in South Africa. Of course, that's what they're concerned about. Yeah, no, the fact that they come together after the war to just say, hey, we're, we're white, yeah. In, in fact, this is made apparent by the uh, rebellion of Swaziland. Uh, Black Africans retake Swaziland and negotiate their own settlement with the British, separate from South Africa. And that is why Swaziland is not a part of South Africa. Oh, so that's how that happened. Yeah. Uh, and the Boers and British both realize, oh, no. The people who are actually supposed to live here might take back the country if we keep killing each other. Also, the Boers are about are starting to run out of people. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, it, it, it's absolutely despicable um, why this war ends and how it ends because it's it's genocide, which is only stopped for the sake of racism. Yay, racism. Who, who said it's such a divisive topic when it brings people together? Yeah. For for legal purposes, that is a joke. That is not serious. That is, that is yeah. You can tell by the southern accent. Yes, yes. Anytime something is said with an accent, I'm not being serious. But, yeah. like, it, it truly is an atrocious thing because almost 100,000 people died in total. 20,000 yeah. soldiers from the British side, 14,000 Boer troops, and then a further 50,000 civilians. And yeah. the only way it ended was they ended up basically coming together to disenfranchise the majority black community to ensure a minority white rule because of the wealth. Yeah, yeah. And... uh Fun fact, uh, the civilian casualty count, those are the minimum numbers. 
That is the fewest number of bodies they could have killed. And the, the, the fucked up thing is, this happened in the beginning of the, ni- the 19th century. It wasn't until the 1990s when apartheid ended. And the, the separation between the segregation, I should say, because that's just what it is. The segregation ended very, very recently. Like, we're talking about an event that happened 130 years ago, still having modern ramifications less than 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, Justin, to that point, the first study that indicated that any Africans were involved in or were killed during this war occurred in 1986. Yeah. What the fuck? They refused to acknowledge the systematic murder of 20,000 people for 80 years. That sounds about right. <laughs> On the basis of those people's skin tone. You know, um, it makes me wonder yeah. how, because you, because like, there's like the British school systems don't teach this stuff usually. Like, they're just as bad as Americans, American schools not teaching about like Native American genocides. And it just, it, the thing is, it not only do they prevent that side of things. But the war had long-term standing effects. Like I mentioned, mania, which is the cause of World War One, which includes militarism, alliances, nationalism, imperialism, yeah. and... Oh, God. And the, the simple fact that, like, Kruger running around uh, trying to get support to save his people really made Britain look like the bad guy, alongside what Kitchener was doing. Like... Britain gets kind of isolated from some of the mainland German states that like, you know, the Dutch a little bit more, like Germany and Austria-Hungary, suddenly don't trust England not to be, you know, interfering or problematic. Which also, on the same token of that, given the time period, most of uh, Africa and the Middle East at this time was subdivided against European nations. So if England is having this unrelenting war against another neighboring colony of a European nation, God knows what they're going to do in, you know, the Middle East, in the Holy Land, in any number of their colonial holdings. It's not a unique thing for it to be in, like, it. Yeah. it the possibility it's, of it being yeah. an isolated event is less than likely. Yeah, the, you know, today they took out the Dutch colonies. Tomorrow they might take out the Belgian Next, who knows? Maybe they'll target the French. Wait, or the you heard German, it here first. Or the Italian. The English are going for the Congo. <laughs> Not again. Yeah. Yeah. Belgian yeah. uh, Congo. I will never let you talk, let you talk me into covering that. <laughs> if you all thought this was dark, Belgian Congo, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, I got you to even mention it so that the yeah. seed has been I, planted. No, no, it will not be planted. Anyway, the conclusion of this war lays the foundation for the Union of South Africa in 1910, which is how we end up with the nation of South Africa today. Uh, simple fact, the British wanted to consolidate all of this into one colony instead of managing four separate ones. Uh, the British uh, really, uh, really don't get too much out of this. Well, uh, other than they now have uh, the Dutch on their side to commit apartheid. You're, you're forgetting the most important fact that I mentioned pre-recording. That one of the main figures that ended up coming out of this war is a one Sir Winston Churchill, who was a uh, member of the British Army at this time, conducting external affairs there, and uh, ended up becoming a prisoner of war. And was considered a war hero when he returned back to England. Yeah. So he is, he, Winston Churchill during this war, he is credited with um, spotting a Boer ambush and saving most of his regiment, despite being captured. And then he is credited with a heroic escape from captivity and imprisonment by savages, i.e. Boers, when he hops the prison fence and makes a run for it. (laughs) And this man ended up going into politics shortly thereafter. Um, he was one of those, uh, what did you he say is, earlier? Heredi- uh, hereditary uh, leaders? Yeah, hereditary promotions. Yes, hereditary you promotions. You think they would have learned their lesson during the Crimean War with hereditary officers? Look, honestly, talk about Crimea. Uh, on, on, honestly, uh, <laughs> honestly, Aaron, 
this is this is this is Churchill we're talking about. The you know the man might be a hero in World War II. He might be a quote unquote hero in the uh, in the Boer War. But I just have to say the word Gallipoli, and we all know what he really thought yeah. and what he really was. Anyways, uh, that's a nice little bow tie we can put on the Boer Wars. We thought that'd be an interesting topic and a little more modern than some of our usual uh, shindigs. But as you can see, this, what seemed to be a smaller event in the grand scheme of things, ended up having long-term repercussions and long-term effects that bled out just beyond South Africa. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely set the uh, stage of mistrust between the uh, European powers prior to World War One, and it most definitely didn't give uh, Germany and, to some extent, the United States uh, any ideas on how to suppress an undesired population. Ooh, yeah, that's a tough darkness. One. Thank you guys yeah. for watching. If you enjoyed, drop a like down below. Be sure to check out our other videos, and we will see you in the next video.